Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Chloe Rafferty. And I'm Emma Norton. Uh, and we're recording this podcast on Gadigal land, uh, land that was stolen, uh, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah, and today we're talking about Karl Marx, big guy in the socialist movement, the founder of Marxism, as the name suggests. Um, and we wanted to talk a bit about Marx, uh, not only as a writer, as the you know, theorist of the socialist movement, but also as an activist, um, you know, a political refugee um, involved in revolutions, um, uh, you know, who also you know, wrote some of the key documents uh, of the socialist movement, but also um, was a revolutionary activist in his own right. Yeah, he did a lot of cool stuff in his time with his BFF Frederick Engels. We'll talk about them uh, in a bit. And today we're joined by Rick Kuhn, who's a Marxist writer and a longtime member of our organisation Socialist Alternative. He's also a Deutsche Prize winner, which is very cool. It's a prize that you win for being a really good Marxist and writing a great Marxist book. Uh, and his recent book is Henrik Grossman and the Recovery of Marxism. Today we're going to be talking about Karl Marx, um, you know, the originator of Marxism. <laughs> um, but bef- uh, to kind of kick us off, I thought we could start by just establishing some biographical details. So. Can you tell us a bit about the young Marx? Marx was born in 1818 in Trier, which is on the Rhine, an area that had been occupied by France during the revolutionary period and therefore had some experience of bourgeois democratic norms. But after the defeat of Napoleon, Prussia took over. Karl's daddy... Uh, was a lawyer and uh, his family was Jewish. But in order to practice law in reactionary Prussia, old Daddy Marx had to convert nominally to Protestantism. Uh, So Karl didn't grow up uh, in a Jewish atmosphere, but he had Jewish rallies with which he uh, had a reasonable amount to do. He went to an academic high school, a gymnasium in Trier, and around the age of 17, he toddled off to university initially to study law in Bonn, Uh, but he found that a bit tedious, so he transferred to Berlin and concentrated on philosophy and hung out with uh, a bunch of young Hegelians and was interested in philosophical questions, uh, but also uh, regarded philosophy as a kind of a gateway to a more democratic society. What did he come to think about philosophy in general? What he came to think about philosophy in general is summed up in something he wrote a bit later uh, in uh, his theses on Feuerbach. Uh, And there he said, philosophers have hitherto sought to understand the world. The point is to change it. Now, by that stage, uh, Marx had graduated from university, but a reactionary turn in Prussian politics meant that he had no prospect of getting an academic job. So he took to writing for a newspaper in the Rhineland, in the largest city of the Rhineland, Cologne, Köln, and Marx made several contributions to this newspaper called the uh, Rheinische Zeitung, the Rhineland newspaper, and eventually became its editor. And it was in the course of his journalistic activities that he started looking at the material conditions of working people. So he couldn't really follow his um, journalistic career for terribly long because the Prussian authorities got pissed off with the Rheinische Zeitung and shut it down. Yeah, and Marx didn't start off as a Marxist, did he? He 
developed these ideas over time. I guess no one starts off as a Marxist. No one's born no, that no, way. No, no, he didn't spring from Mama Marx's <laughs> no. womb uh, exactly. with a copy of the Communist Manifesto in his hand. Yeah. But he, I mean, it, he developed those ideas by participating in the workers' movement and in revolutionary upheavals, which we'll get to in a bit. But one thing I wanted to ask about is this constant in his life is that he had a lot of fights. Like he had a lot of arguments uh, with anarchists, liberals, other socialists, just other and you know other philosophers, like you said. Um, and he's sometimes maligned for that. But do you think that was important? Those those arguments informing his ideas. Well, there is currently a fetish for politeness, which often means not disagreeing with people. Argument and sorting out differences are actually crucial to coming to clear ideas. And not just about politics, this is more broadly the case, but especially about politics. So Marx was very concerned to clarify his ideas. So, yeah, Marx was a polemicist and good on him. At this stage, he wasn't a historical materialist in the sense that he hadn't identified the working class as the key agent for revolutionary change. Mm. He saw workers and intellectuals together, or philosophy and workers together as doing the trick, rather than the working class as being the fundamental agent for bringing about social change. What are some of the experiences and debates that he has that start to push him towards that idea that the working class are the social force that can radically change society? Well, he starts hanging out with workers for a start. <laughs> that can help. This is particularly <laughs> the case uh, when he's in Paris where he uh, associates with German workers and at this stage workers are mainly artisanal workers. They're, they're, there are factory workers but not that many and most of them are actually in England, um, but he starts hanging out with, with workers, both German workers who are living in Paris, but also Parisian workers. And he gets a feel for uh, working class politics and working class ideas and working class conditions. And it's in this period and subsequently when he moves to Belgium, because he's kicked out of Paris uh, on the uh, initiative of the Prussian government who whispers in the uh, French government's ear, get rid of this fucker, um, in Belgium as well. And it's there that he develops a clear historical materialist, that is Marxist conception. And this is aided uh, by a guy who he had a very brief acquaintanceship with when he was the editor of the Rheinische Zeitung, a guy called Frederick Engels, who dropped by to visit the editor of the Rheinische Zeitung because it was a, a left-wing paper. And Marx didn't make much of it, but they met again later and decided uh, that their ideas really coincided. And Engels had direct connections with the most modern working class in the world, that is the working class in England and especially in Manchester, which was the centre for English industry. And Marx and Engels decided that their perspectives were essentially the same and began to collaborate. And that collaboration was pursued particularly uh, when Marx and for a period Engels were living in Belgium. And so this is the period where they're no longer thinking about the working class as just the kind of victims of capitalism and as kind of sympathetic layer, but also the social agent that's capable of challenging the capitalist order. Is that right? That's right. The, the emphasis on philosophy uh, as sort of enlightening uh, decreases. It's not that they don't think that making arguments and promoting their politics is not important anymore, but they see that as being a way of engaging workers to liberate themselves. And Marx and Engels engage in 
a campaign of winning workers to their ideas. There are left-wing communist workers' organisations and Marx and Engels begin a correspondence with these organisations in different cities, arguing with them uh, in order to win them over to their perspectives. And eventually, they win over the bulk of an international communist workers' organisation. It's an organisation of essentially German workers, but German workers who are scattered in different parts of Europe. They win them over to their politics. That organisation is called the League of the Just, and it has sort of utopian and elitist ideas about transforming society. That League of the Just, uh, after it's won over to Marx and Engels' perspective, changes its name to the Communist League and decides that it will no longer simply be a clandestine and underground organisation, but will, to the extent possible, work above ground. And part of that is that they need some sort of a statement that clarifies what they're on about. I assume you're referring to the Communist Manifesto, but before we talk about that, I might just get you to explain some of the stuff about utopian socialism, because funnily enough, Marx and Marxism is often accused of being a utopian idea, Um, but he actually spent a lot of his time in those days arguing against utopian socialists. So can you explain the difference and what was utopian about them, why they were wrong? The key figures in utopian socialism were uh, Saint-Simon, Fourier, and Robert Owen. Saint-Simon and and Fourier were French, and Robert Owen was English. And essentially what they did, and what was utopian about them, was that they drew up plans for a new socialist society. They had different ideas uh, about how change would come about. Fourier allegedly let it be known that he would sit in a cafe in Paris uh, from sometime in the afternoon till the early evening uh, so that anybody who was interested in financing his ideas could come along and make a contribution. Uh, All three of them engaged and promoted efforts to establish utopian colonies. both in Europe and in North America. That is, groups of people would go and set up the new kind of society in little, uh, and the idea was, well, others would copy them. Didn't turn out that way. So Marx and Engels' ideas and the ideas that that the League of the Just People were won over to when they formed the Communist League was that the working class could actually emancipate itself, that the working class, because it was the class that created wealth in society, in capitalist society, uh, had tremendous potential power, and it could exercise that power uh, collectively through revolution to bring about change. So the working class didn't have to wait for some money bags to come along and finance a utopian factory commune. It's funny, right, because a lot of these these ideas still exist today. I don't think Marx killed utopian socialism uh, dead when he formed the the Communist League. I think um, a lot of people have this vision of socialism that you can – create a, a miniature little commune or something. Just go up into the north coast of, Hin- <laughs> of New South Wales hinterland yeah. and set Iron up Bay. the perfect society. It's very pretty. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, it'll catch on. People will see how successful it is and, um, and replicate it. But the reality is that the whole world is controlled by, um, you know, the global capitalist class and as Marx uh, and Engels understood, you have to actually fight them and overthrow them if you want to establish uh, socialism and build anything. And so all your blueprints are, are not very useful when that's the key goal 
um, is is winning that fight. That that's right, and not only are the blueprints not terribly useful, but the creativity of workers will generate new ideas and new modes of organisation in the course of revolutionary struggle and after uh, what Marx and Engels initially called uh, the battle for democracy had been won. Let's talk a bit about the Communist Manifesto. Um, so what, why'd they write it? <laughs> um, and you know, what are some of the important ideas in that um, at the time? Well, they, they wrote it as a statement of the position of the Communist League. And it's called the Manifesto of the Communist Party. Party at that stage meant something much closer to movement. So it's a manifesto for a movement, not just for the League, but a manifesto uh, that um, would appeal to other communists who were not necessarily members of the League. What was in the Communist Manifesto? Well, starts out as a bit of a hymn of praise to capitalism in some respects. It talks about how capitalism is incredibly productive uh, and has enabled the possibility for a different kind of a society to exist. The manifesto also identifies the way in which capitalism is oppressive of workers and also of women, and how capitalism is prone to break down, is prone to economic crises. And the basic argument is the one that we've already gone over, which is that workers have the power to liberate themselves. Yeah, it also starts with that famous line about all the, the history of hitherto society is the history of class struggle, which is... Um, Oh, well, the beginning is actually a spectre is haunting Europe. Sorry, that's the true. spectre of communism. People say it's a hobgoblin. <laughs> well, the, the first translation, the first unauthorised translation uh, had that first line as a horrible hobgoblin is stalking across Europe. Which do you prefer? You speak German. What, what's more accurate? I, th I think that the standard translation by Moore is perfectly accurate and a damn sight more poetic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, why, why was it important that Marx uh, makes this argument that class struggle is at the centre of actually not just, you know, the history that he was living through, feudalism to capitalism, but all of human history? Well, it's immediately important because the working class is becoming a more important uh, layer in global society. This development uh, is most pronounced in Europe at this stage. A, a modern working class is emerging, and it's the emergence of that working class, the experience of that working class, especially in the most developed capital society of the time in England, that actually makes it possible for Marx and Engels to think through their ideas. So it's not just the Silesian weavers uprising uh, in, uh, in Germany, but also the Chartist movement, which is a massive working class movement in England from the 1830s through into the late 1840s that indicates that workers are a social force and a political force. So Marx and Engels are drawing on that experience of the working class, they are generalising it, and they are indicating how that working class force can most effectively exercise its potential power. And he's also making the point that like every social order um, has, is, is subject to change, that, you know, the social orders rise and fall, modes of productions in kind of Marxist language. And actually, like, the bourgeois order was still coming into being, um, you know, the later part of that in the era that Marx and Engels are kicking around in, like that capitalism itself required revolutions to kind of come into being. Like, how important do you think 
revolution is in the Communist Manifesto because I've heard academics, plenty of academics try and argue, actually the Communist Manifesto shows that they're really real reformists. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I, I, the Communist Manifesto is clearly a revolutionary document and anybody who argues that it isn't has no conception of the context in which it is written. There was no way that Prussia or the whole of geographical Germany was going to de be democratised uh, on the basis of reformism. Uh, and in fact, it was only a revolution that eventually led to proper bourgeois democracy being introduced to Germany. And that was in 1918. Uh, so the idea that Marx and Engels could have thought that uh, their goals could be achieved without revolution is just uh, ridiculous. It's just uh, a bizarre notion. And uh, they, as you suggest, Chloe, uh, they had a sort of a model, which was the, the revolution in France, uh, and particularly during uh, its high point, the Jacobin, well, actually, the, the whole of the, the French Revolution from 1789 through to 1794, uh, when things start to become more conservative. That was their model. And uh, they thought that, as you suggest, capitalism could be overthrown in the same way as feudalism was overthrown in France. Now, they weren't the first people to talk about classes, to talk about revolution, but they are really the first to talk about workers' revolution and workers' revolution as a process of achieving mass democracy and workers' revolution being a mass phenomenon rather than socialism being something that was granted from above. Well, let's move on to the 1848 revolutions, which follow immediately on the heels of the publication of the Communist Manifesto. A stroke of luck rather than a question yeah, of a cause <laughs> and effect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, although I'm sure they, they had a, a big impact on a lot of the workers involved in those revolutions. Well, they had an impact and they had felt, they felt that something was in the air, hence the spectre of communism. Yeah. Well, when the spectre became a, I don't know, a reality. more of a reality and a, a ghoulish goblin or whatever, um, let's talk about that. What were the, some of the lessons that they learnt from the 1848 revolutions and their participation in them? Well, I think it's important to say that Marx and Engels were participants. So they hightailed it back to uh, Cologne and they established a newspaper called the Neue Rheinische Zeitung, the New Rhineland newspaper, uh, and used that to try and cohere the more radical elements in the revolutionary movement in Germany and also to cohere a working class element in that revolutionary movement. The course of the revolution in Germany and also the revolution in France, where it had initially broken out in February 1848, uh, taught Marx that uh, middle class and capitalist elements were not only not reliable allies in a struggle for thoroughgoing democracy, but that they would have to be opposed. Uh, because in the face of mass working class action that the revolution involved, the capitalist classes of Europe took terrible fright and decided uh, in Germany in particular that it was pre preferable to side with the King of Prussia rather than with the working class, because the working class uh, was too unruly uh, and had its own interests. Hmm. They realised, right, that the, um, I mean, the bourgeoisie, you know, some sections of the bourgeoisie around Europe actually, you know, did want democracy, had some commitment to it, but that that commitment didn't actually extend so far. They were willing to drop even that 
their commitment to democracy in order to quell workers' rebellions. And you really see that in, in Paris in um, 1848 where the, uh, the you know, workers' uprising is, is drowned in blood by the, the actual liberals who are meant to be the supposed, um, you know, allies of the working class in, a, in this democratic revolution. And from that, you know, Marx and Engels uh, draw this conclusion that, yeah, the working class has to not completely go it alone necessarily, but always defend itself against, um, against the capitalist class and put forward its own demands and, and organise in its own parties as well. Um, separate from its basically its class enemies, even when the the whole issue of of a bourgeois revolution and democracy is is technically on the cards. And they draw out well, Marx draws out these conclusions in a book about the revolution in France called Class Struggles in France. He draws out these important lessons. Uh, they do. They also write about the experience in Germany, but the this book about France is particularly important in clarifying uh, what a working class perspective, what a perspective for a successful workers' revolution needs to be. I think also if you look at Marx and Engels' activism around 1848, and it is you know political activism as well as writing, it really puts to lie this idea really cultivated in academia that Marx um, in particular, Marx and Engels are just these kind of intellectuals, academics, actually probably one of the best things that ever happened to Marx was just not getting a job in academia. Absolutely. <laughs> like his inability to get one. Um, but then they're just kind of sitting around the British Museum, kind of uh, stuffy museums like writing capital, obviously very important that they did write that. But they're not kind of seen as these, you know, political activists, party builders that are actually involved in revolutionary practice itself. Um, you know, I think um, I read recently that Marx spent like a little bit of his inheritance on actually like buying a bunch of guns <laughs> to defend some Belgian workers. I can't, I don't know if that was in the 1848 <laughs> period. And Engels um, got uh, the nickname of the the general, I think it was, from his involvement in actually like coming up with ways to defend the barricades. I mean, yeah, one of the other bits of evidence, I think, that they were real activists and, and party builders is all of the writing that they do in this period from, you know, the Communist Manifesto, like you said, the class struggles in France and the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, which all of which are popular, um, you know, writings of theirs. They're all interventions into a movement. They're all actually about what that movement should do. They're arguments to the radical workers uh, of Paris, of Berlin, of elsewhere around Europe, uh, what they should actually do in these in these revolutionary moments and um and so on you know they're not just kind of academic uh, yeah little pieces <laughs> they're, um yeah they're part of them trying to build a movement well that that's right and marx only retreats to the reading room of the british museum which is now the british library uh he only retreats there when it's quite clear that a period of reaction has set in in Europe and the scope for effective organisation, particularly uh, amongst German workers, uh, has really come to a close. And even during that period, he plays a role in uh, supporting members of the Communist League who are being persecuted in Germany. So uh, there's limited scope for political activity, Marx devotes more time to his theoretical efforts uh, and Engels goes back to working uh, in the factory that his dad part owns in Manchester. But whenever there are opportunities to re-engage in practical politics, Marx and Engels jump at those opportunities. Well. We'll get back to a few of those opportunities later, but I did want to ask about Capital. I mean, <laughs> it's a three-volume masterpiece on which you could do an entire podcast series, but and it's obviously impossible to sum up here, but can you try? Like, <laughs> at least, you know, what was Marx trying to do with this? What, you know, what's the central idea if there is one? Well, 
it's that workers create society's wealth and that a large part of that wealth is appropriated by the capitalist class. And Marx explained this in what I would call scientific terms, that is, in very systematic, detailed terms that are empirically verifiable. There had been political economists before Marx who had developed labour theories of value. That is the idea that workers' labour creates wealth. What Marx does in the first volume of Capital is to go beyond those earlier labour theories of value, which had difficulties in explaining where profits, exactly profits came from. Marx made an important distinction between people's ability to work and, which he called uh, labour power, and their labour. And Marx argued that workers create more wealth uh, in the course of a working day than is necessary to sustain themselves, that is, uh, to uh, ensure that they come to work the next day. And that is what the bosses pay them, essentially enough for them to reproduce themselves. But the additional amount of value that workers create that surplus value is the basis for profit. So that is a really key argument and an original argument in the first volume of Capital. And uh, it's a crucial argument for understanding the logic of how capitalism works, which Marx goes through in greater detail in other respects both in the first volume of Capital and in the second and third volumes as well, which were not published in his lifetime. I could be wrong about this, but um, one of my understanding of like the turn to writing Capital during the period of the counter-revolution after 1848 when the prospects for real political activism have massively dried up because of that reaction is like giving a proper economic foundation to socialism and the socialist movement and like part of it is also an argument about crisis because I as I understand it is that that's a period of economic stabilization which kind of underpins yes. why why the kind of 1848 revolutionary wave has kind of closed off because capitalism's kind of economically stabilized again and uh, there were a lot of like revolutionaries that were you know close comrades of Marx that kind of didn't want to admit <laughs> that the prospects of 1848 had kind of dried up. So do you, yeah, like how important do you think uh, is understanding uh, capitalist crises to, to, to Marx at this time and, um, and writing capital? Well, Marx and Engels deal with capitalism's inherent proneness to crises already in the Communist Manifesto. What capital, and especially the third volume of capital, do is to explain in a much more systematic and actually a much more satisfactory way what, lead, what it is about capitalism that leads to economic crises and the way in which capitalism's own incredible productivity itself underpins economic crises uh, because that increased productivity of human labour uh, and the investment in machinery and equipment and buildings that brings this increased productivity about, that this process uh, undermines the rate of profit. Um, I'm not sure if we want to go into any greater detail about that yet. Maybe we'll um, direct people to some of your writings and other articles about Marxist economics, if they want to read more about the falling rate of profit. Um, there's a lot to get into there. But yeah, I think that's important that Marx and Engels established a, on a, you know, a scientific basis for the continued crises of capitalism um, throughout history. And we're still, you know, still experiencing those today, obviously, um, not even that long ago that the entire global financial system went into uh, a massive crash. I think you can still use uh, lots of elements of Marx's 
um, writings in Capital to understand that. Well, Marxism has an undeserved reputation, really, for being class reductionist, something that academics would often accuse Marx of, um, basically accusing him of ignoring political issues of oppression, things like sexism, racism, national liberation struggles, um, that sort of thing. Do you, what, what would you say to that argument? Marx uh, was very attuned to different forms of oppression and was committed to resistance to those forms of oppression. Both Marx and Engels repeated uh, words of Fourier to the effect that the degree of progressiveness of any society can be assessed by looking at the status of women in those societies. Marx also uh, identified with the struggle of the Irish against their oppression within the British Empire. He identified with the North in the Civil War in the United States because that Civil War was a war against slavery. One of the aspects of the war was a war against slavery. And Marx also, and Engels, identified with uh, the uh, forces that opposed British imperialism in India, in the great Indian revolt, uh, which British imperialists called the mutiny. I think this stuff is really important because it is one of the key arguments that we hear all of the time. And actually, socials today you know, play a big role in a whole series of campaigns that are not immediately about some question of wages or class that might be about trans rights or the environment or any other question, um, that you can have a class analysis of these things that it doesn't mean being a class reductionist like uh, Marx and Engels or Engels in particular's writing um, on women um, in, you know, the origins of the family, private property and the state. Um, and, yeah, the, the their activism during the Civil War, it shows that, like, a lot of political struggles, which could be understood through a class analysis, but didn't necessarily uh, at that time, wor- workers were not necessarily playing the key role um, in those struggles, were also really important um, struggles for challenging capitalism. So I know a bunch of um, Marx's comrades in 1848 end up in exile fighting for the North in the Civil War, and lots of Marx and Engels' um, you know, journalism and writing is about um, what they saw it as a really important struggle, even though it wasn't uh, a workers' revolution. And similarly, with you mentioned as well, um, Rick, Ireland and India. You know, these were very underdeveloped countries that had been, you know, that were oppressed by the British. And Marx and Engels didn't go, oh well, fuck it, I don't care because there's not workers, <laughs> <laughs> there's not workers organising in unions to, you know, have a workers' revolution. He was um, intensely involved in in campaigning for the rights of the Irish and he wrote like, you know, I've tried to read some of them. There's a lot of articles that he wrote about uh, the Indian struggle as well because he saw these as, like you said, Chloe, a, a, an attack on um, global capitalism that could actually upset the kind of the um, order of of capitalism in Europe by weakening one of the most important capitalist countries of, of Britain. Um, so he was intensely interested in that. And I think another thing is that he, him and Engels made serious contributions to like how to understand these issues. It's not just that they campaigned around them, but um, I think particularly Engels' work on, on women, um, what Marx wrote about the national question um, and racism, I think are, are still valuable for us today to understand the nature of these forms of oppression and why they're so crucial to capitalism and how working class struggle can actually um, overcome them. The way of the Well, during the period of the first international, probably the most important struggle to break out, most important struggle uh, to break out in the world until the Russian Revolution, um, was the Paris Commune. Um, what was the Paris Commune and what were Marx and Engels' intervention into that? What did they think of the Commune? Well, 
The commune arose uh, with the defeat of the French army in the Prusso-French uh, War. After that defeat, um, workers took power in Paris and established a highly democratic form of government uh, that acted in the interests of the working class. The Paris Commune only lasted a couple of months, but it was a momentous event in the history of the workers' movement because it's the first time that workers actually take power in a, an important city anywhere in the world. And Marx and the International were the most fervent supporters of the Commune while it existed and were crucial defenders of the experience of the Commune after it was defeated. The Commune also led Marx and Engels to make the only major revision to the Communist Manifesto. And the thrust of that revision was that we have to go further in understanding what a revolution uh, is about. And a revolution they had concluded from the Commune is about smashing the old state and replacing it with a new state of a different, far more democratic kind. And that uh, the model of that new democratic state, which could replace the smashed capitalist state, was the Paris Commune. And this is uh, Marx's concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat the dictatorship of an entire class, not one individual, a dictatorship that actually is more democratic than the old dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, which is what liberal democracy is about. It's about the rule of the bourgeoisie, whereas the dictatorship of the proletariat is about a democratic regime with workers that is the majority of society in power. We might move on to the last short chapter of Marx's life. He died soon after the first social democratic parties were set up, uh, many of which still exist in some form today. Um, but he and Engels critiqued the programs of these parties from the start, particularly the, the social democratic party in Germany um, in the, the critique of the Gotha program. So what does that tell us about their attitude to the kind of reform or revolution debate that has plagued Marxism for the last you know, two centuries since then? Marx argued in the critique of the Gotha program that, that the New Party's program made far too many concessions to the ideas of a guy called Ferdinand Lassalle. And one of the important arguments that Marx makes there is to talk about what workers' revolution will actually bring about. He argued that there would be two stages of communism. And the first stage, uh, which you might call socialism, would immediately follow the revolution itself, and it would be a workers' state which presided over the dismantling of key features of capitalist society and a period during which class society uh, would be overcome so that there were no classes anymore and therefore there would be no longer a need for a state because states are fundamentally about the repression by one class of other classes. And this is true of all states through history. The class in power may differ, uh, but they are all minority classes which use the state to repress other social layers. If classes no longer exist, then the state is no longer a necessary feature of society. And Marx looked forward to the achievement of 
a classless society, a society would, which would no longer have a state in the sense of an institution that was about the forcible repression of other uh, groups in society and of other classes. Yeah, the critique of the Gotha program is an interesting uh, text to read because in many ways it kind of feels like a teacher marking uh, the revisions of like <laughs> a very poor essay, um, <laughs> a very poor essay indeed, um, quite snappy comments from Marx and Engels that are pretty horrified with some of these revisions. And, you know, obviously you can't read into all, everything, you know, the original sin of uh, reformism. This is the organisation that goes on to eventually be the SPD, the Social Democratic Party of Germany. Um, but, yeah, that real difference between like Marx and Engels are for a, a classless, stateless society ultimately in a revolutionary struggle, the establishment of a worker state, which is not the t capture and perfection of the old bourgeois state, but smashing that state and uh, setting up a new society. But even here in the Gotha program, it's like is – your idea of socialism the perfection of the already existing capitalist state um, or is it a intrans uh, you know intractable hostility uh, to to that state and you could you could already see the fudging going on um, and, and Marx and Engels were were pretty clear even though they you know uh, were supportive of the formation of these um, new workers parties they they uh, did not accept the kind of blurring of the lines between you know what socialism really was absolutely. Yeah, and the Lasallians or the followers of LaSalle were, he often referred to them as like state socialists, right? They were obsessed with the, yeah, actually capturing the bourgeois state. And that's certainly what reformists have gone on to do over the, the centuries since then. Yeah, well, and LaSalle himself had made uh, secret overtures to Otto von Bismarck, the German chancellor, uh, seeking an alliance with Bismarck against the liberal bourgeoisie uh, where the uh, workers' movement would receive certain concessions in terms of welfare measures. Mm. To, to our listeners who don't know, this guy was a bad guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> notorious yeah, for uh, laws called the anti-socialist laws. Okay. Um, so. We're talking about Bismarck yeah. now, not, not, not LaSalle. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. LaSalle's yeah. LaSalle just an idiot. <laughs> just, yeah. uh, I just think it's a good thing to remember when, you know, if people tell you that Stalinism is Marxism or modern reformism is Marxism, to remember these, you know, the critiques that Marx and Engels actually had of, of state socialism and of this idea. They were very much for uh, seeing communism as a classless society that could only be brought about by a workers' revolution that smashes the state. Absolutely. Uh, well, I guess to finish, is Marxism just a 19th century idea? Uh, you know, do you think his insights are still relevant to us today? Well, to that rhetorical question, I will <laughs> reply that uh, things have changed since the 19th century. That's certainly true. Our contemporary global society is one in which the working class is the majority of humanity. And this has only come about actually since the Second World War. Before that, the majority of humanity were peasants. Our contemporary society is one in which the concentrations of economic power are of unheard of extent, are phenomenal. You only have to think of uh, Elon Musk to understand that. But it goes beyond individuals. It's also a question of the scale of uh, the largest corporations, whether they're headed by loons like uh, Musk or not, are uh, compared with the scale of corporations uh, in earlier times. So... Marx and Engels were talking about a capitalist society in which the most important classes, the classes that had a significant future, were the capitalist class and the working class. And Marx wrote about the dynamic uh, of production in capitalist society. 
The society we live in today is a capital society in which that dynamic is still operating and in which those two classes still exist and still have fundamentally counterposed interests. So I think Marxism is still extremely relevant, certainly more relevant than it has been in the past, given the course of capitalist development. And that's a development that today is looking more and more dangerous, not just for workers, but for the whole of humanity. Marxism provides a way of understanding the logic of capitalism that leads to these disastrous consequences. Uh, and it points the way to how we can overcome that logic through workers' revolution. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Rick. Thanks, Rick. It's my pleasure. Our well, as you've probably learned from our podcast today, Karl Marx and Engels were activists. They weren't just armchair philosophers sitting in the British Museum uh, writing massive tomes. They actually spent most of their time, most of their life, fighting for their ideas, uh, being part of revolutions, of working class uprisings. And even in the times where nothing quite so exciting was happening, they were involved in you know, campaigns uh, for justice and for uh, working class rights. And that's the kind of thing we think everybody should be involved in today because the world is still extremely fucked up. Um, as Marx predicted, uh, it has not gotten better. It's still racked by crises, still racked by oppression and exploitation, and there's a myriad of reasons uh, to get involved in the socialist movement today. Yeah, because the reality is the capitalist class don't care if you're just a socialist in your head. Um, <clears throat> and that's why you know we're not uh, armchair Marxists, despite the fact that we're both in quite comfortable armchairs right now. Um, uh, this podcast is the podcast of Socialist Alternative, where the largest uh, you know, revolutionary socialist organization in Australia, um, and it's really vital that we rebuild a radical tradition of Marxism in this country and everywhere in the world. So if you're interested in socialist politics, you consider yourself anti-capitalist, you want to explore these ideas, uh, not just as ideas, but how to start putting this into practice um, check out Socialist Alternative. Uh, we've got a stay in touch form in the show notes. Um, so please leave your details and a socialist in a city near you will get in touch about how you can get involved in the socialist movement today. Yeah, we hope to fight alongside you in the coming years. And that's all from us from Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. Uh-huh.